down in, in um, Brazil, Danny sat hour after hour listening to my teaching on the kingdom, and he said, could I come and summarize all of that in one session in his church? So this is my best shot to take a very large subject and uh, distill it into, into one session. Now, I think you probably know that in the vineyard, our basis of everything we do is the kingdom of God, as taught by Jesus. And one of the popular phrases that summarizes that is this phrase, the already and the not yet. Can I just have hands up? How many of you have heard that taught? Yeah, well, I said to Danny, when, when you look at Danny, if you've never met him, to me he looks like uh, a learned rabbi. <laughs> that beard, it just rabbinical. So he's done a good job teaching you, obviously. Now, that popular phrase uh, reflects a more profound um, slogan that we use in the vineyard to describe this teaching of the kingdom. And let me go word by word. Eschatology comes from the Greek word eschatos, which means the end. So it's a, the teaching about the end of this world and the day of judgment and the beginning of the next world, eschatology. Inaugurated eschatology means that in Jesus and in the coming of Pentecost, that end of the world future event gets rolled out now in advance so that the future that God is going to uh, do for this world and for humanity starts breaking in already, being inaugurated in now in the ministry of Jesus. And this is what Jesus taught all the time. But Jesus didn't simply teach this as a doctrine. He demonstrated or enacted it by the signs and wonders, the healings, uh, feeding of the multitudes. He was showing that that future world that God has for humanity is here now in the present. So this phrase summarizes the whole thing in, in one little slogan, enacted, inaugurated eschatology. Now, how did we get this teaching of the kingdom? Where did it come from? And so I'm going to spend a few minutes telling you the story of where this uh, theology of the kingdom of God came from. Can I also just give a little, you know, sell for Vineyard Institute? When we formed Vineyard Institute, the, the national directors of the vineyards of all the different countries said, give us a whole curriculum on kingdom theology. And so that's what it is. And if you studied... Um, Vineyard Institute, you would come out absolutely cooked in the kingdom of God at the other end, totally brainwashed in, I think, the teaching and mission of Jesus. So it all took place when the founder of the vineyard, John Wimber, got the theology of the kingdom from a, a theologian at Fuller Seminary in California called George Ladd. And there was this kind of handover of, of this fresh theology to John Wimber. So that story now uh, is a pivotal, well-known history of the vineyard. But where did Ladd get his understanding of the kingdom from? And so I'm going to go a little bit backwards from 
this, the life of, of Ladd and tell you where this theology came from. And then, of course, Ladd has now passed away, and so has Wimber, but kingdom theology has continued and has actually grown in, in the world today. So I'm going to also tell you the story from that time up to today, what's, what's happening. So going backwards, Ladd didn't develop this himself. He popularized and brought into the American evangelical church a development that was happening actually for about 100 years before that, but particularly um, from just after the Second World War onwards. And as often is the case, it was the Germans who did all the hard work, and then us Anglos just, you know, simplify it. Um, so there was a famous scholar called Kummel, another one called Oskar Kuhlmann, and it was Oskar Kuhlmann who actually coined the phrase, the already and the not yet. Well, where did they get all of this from? And what they were developing is really quite a big deal, that for the first time in 2,000 years, in the last 50 years, 100 years, there has been a whole rediscovery of Jesus uh, that is unprecedented. Who he was, what he taught, what his ministry was. And you know, anything that leads us to rediscover Jesus has to be very, very important because Jesus is the center of everything. L listen to the songs we sing this morning. You know, uh, it is through Jesus that we understand what God is like. It is through Jesus that we are saved. It is through Jesus that we have our mission uh, for the church and so on. So how come there's been this major rediscovery of Jesus? Can I also just say that I've got a friend who's a part of the New Wine Movement, which is an Anglican charismatic movement in England. Uh, he's a theologian. And he, he said to me recently that when we look back on this rediscovery of Jesus in later history, it may prove to be as significant as the Reformation was. Now, that's quite a big claim about something that is happening in our time. Why was Jesus rediscovered? Well, for the first time in church history, there has been recently the discovery and availability of the literature of the time of Jesus, which is called Second Temple Judaism. That's the period from when the temple got rebuilt after the exile until it was destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. And for instance, you might have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were literally dug up out of pots in the desert in 1947. But they part of a whole list of writings of Jewish people, the people of Israel, uh, maybe about 100 documents that we have today, from the end of the Old Testament until the time of Jesus, 2nd century B.C., 1st century B.C., the century of Jesus, and even thereafter, that we didn't have before that. Uh, it's really uh, up to archaeology and uh, people who study the ancient Near East that all of this literature suddenly became uh, available. So the reformers didn't have this literature, uh, Wesley and Whitfield, all these great leaders of the church before, they had many things, but they, this is fresh uh, that's happened. And the result is that Jesus got understood 
in a way different from the way the church has been reading the Gospels for the last 2,000 years. Really, the church has been reading the Gospels in a historical vacuum, not knowing the context, the time, the thought patterns of the people, uh, their expectations, particularly their expectation of the coming of the kingdom and of the end of this age and the beginning of the next age. Uh, we could never read the Gospels in their context. And all of a sudden now, we can read them in the historical context. And it's like a spotlight has come on Jesus where everything he said is now coming to light in the historical context of the time. And you'll, you'll notice if you read the Gospels, he is continually talking about the kingdom of God. Um, what did he mean by that phrase, kingdom of God? And what became very apparent is that everything Jesus said was about the end of the world and the beginning of the next world. Everything Jesus was teaching was eschatological, about God winding up history in a final climax and then a new world coming after that. And so because of this rediscovery, all these theologians and Bible scholars started putting the words of Jesus, especially about the kingdom, under a microscope. And as always with particularly German theologians, uh, who tend to be a little bit over extreme sometimes, um, the pendulum swung in all sorts of radical uh, extremes. And so one guy said that everything Jesus taught was about the end of the world that is not here now, it's in the future, but it's quite imminent. And he was so convinced that this was all that Jesus taught is that he got te other texts that seemed to say something different and he kind of cut them out of the New Testament and said, no, 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 Jesus didn't say that. Then another guy came along who was actually an Englishman and he said, no, 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 no. The main message of Jesus was that the kingdom of God is now present in his ministry. He wasn't about a future thing. He was all about a present thing. And so he got all the texts about the future and he cut them out of the New Testament. And then you had this great sort of comprehendo moment just after the Second World War, these guys, Kummel and, and uh, Kuhlman, where they said, you know, Jesus was clearly teaching both that the kingdom is present and that the kingdom is future. And in fact, he was saying that the future has become present in his ministry. And once you get that and you sort of put that on as a pair of spectacles, everything starts to make sense in, in the Gospels and in the whole of the New Testament. And this understanding really broke fresh onto the theological landscape uh, just after the Second World War. So that's where it came from. And the uh, conclusion we can say is that you know, we have been born out of a theology that never existed in this sense for 2,000 years before that. It's a fresh start uh, in understanding who Jesus is. So that's what happened before uh, Ladd influenced Wimber. But what's happened since then? Well, as we know, both Ladd and Wimber have now passed away, but long live the kingdom. The theology of the kingdom, the understanding of the kingdom, has just progressed even further. Um, and what's happened is that it is now, this subject is really the cutting edge subject in New Testament 
research called Jesus Research. And there's probably about 30 scholars you can find in the world today, and all they're doing is researching what Jesus meant by the kingdom of God. And what's happened is it's been underlined, it's been further nuanced, it's been developed, but nothing has altered the basic fresh discovery of inaugurated eschatology, that the powers of the future world have broken into the present in Jesus. And the wonderful thing for us in the vineyard is that we're not alone in this. This is very ecumenical. So I've listed there Catholic scholars, Anglican scholars, Methodist scholar, and vineyard scholars. Um, And there, there is no theological seminary or university you could go to in the world today where you would find a scholar who doesn't know about this. It's now become universal um, understanding. But the funny thing about theologians is that they can live in a theological bubble where it doesn't apply to real life. And the genius of John Wimber was that he took this fresh discovery of the mission and message of Jesus, and he said, this is not just what we believe, this is what we are going to do. We are also going to enact future kingdom breaking into the present because this is the ministry of Jesus and this is the commission he has given to us. And so there's a, there's a video interview with Carol Wimber after John Wimber died and she, she made this point that he said, now that we've got the kingdom of God, all the books are going to have to be rewritten. And it's interesting, I just did a kind of a round table think tank with some vineyard pastors in Virginia Beach and they read one of the books by this guy called uh, N.T. Wright, that's very popular amongst vineyard pastors. And he says even the creeds have to be reviewed because they don't tell the story of the kingdom sufficiently. So, that's the end of the story time. Now, I suppose I've got your interest to say, well, what is this theology of the kingdom, if it's so important? What's it look like? And so, what I'm going to do now is... um, use a diagram, which I find really helps people understand it. In God's dealings with humanity, according to the Old Testament prophets, he moves in a linear progression of his purpose that begins with the creation story and goes through the centuries, promise and fulfillment, promise and fulfillment, to a climactic moment called the end, the eschatos from which we get this word eschatology. And the end is a, is a final moment where God is going to put right everything that's gone wrong in his creation and in humanity. And he will judge evil, he will bring righteousness, he will bring renewal, and in fact, so decisive will be this event that history as we know it will end and a new world or a new age will begin. And the, the phrase, this age and the coming age, is the actual language that you find Jesus using and Paul and Old Testament prophets. And the age to come uh, is well described in the scenes of the book of Revelation, where it says now the uh, new Jerusalem comes down from heaven to earth. And now the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever. And God will remove all sickness and pain and mourning and evil because the former things have passed away, he has made everything new. And that's what we have as this idea of the coming age. And that picture, that, that worldview, 
is one that was common to all the Old Testament prophets and all the people who wrote all this other literature around the times of Jesus. That's what they were looking for. They were looking for this final moment where God will intervene uh, for the nation of Israel and for his people and change everything. What none of them ever dreamt of, what is completely out of the box and uh, mysterious in, in, in Jesus, is that what he said was that in his mission and ministry, announcing the kingdom and demonstrating the kingdom, that future world broke from the future into the present so that it got inaugurated in advance of the end of the age. And particularly in the high points of his ministry, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension. And that's the little fire is the fire of God in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, all right, in my diagram. In all of those events, the end of the age that is coming arrived already in Jesus Christ. So the inaugurated eschatology took place. And the result now is a new mysterious zone of reality where before this world has terminated, the next world has already begun. And the Christian life is lived slap in the middle of the overlap of these two realities. So if you're a Christian, you have already passed from death to life. You already have eternal life. And that word in the, in the Greek, zoe ionios, means the life of the coming ages. And this is the fresh understanding that has come out of this rediscovery of Jesus. Now, once you've understood that, not only does the whole New Testament start to make sense, but there are a number of important implications. And these are the implications that I go through in my book on the kingdom. And what I'm going to do is just list them, and then I'm going to zoom in on one or two of them. First of all, it means that since the coming of Jesus and Pentecost, we have been living in the last days. So Hebrews chapter 1 puts it like this. In many and various ways, God spoke of old to our uh, fathers through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. In the coming of Jesus, the last days have dawned. And so we are living in the last days, moving towards the last of the last days until we get to the last day. That's, that's the reality we live in. Second implication, therefore, is that every time there is a great move of the Holy Spirit, because Pentecost in that diagram is the coming of the powers of the end of the age, revivals are moments where the end seems to draw near. And if you read people who live in revivals, they all seem to think that the end is very, very imminent. And it's as though the future world uh, comes towards us in revivals. The frustrating thing is that in between revivals, it seems that it goes back again, and we have to live in between revivals. Third thing is once you've understood this, your worldview is one where you are continually open to a fresh intervention of God. And the way I, I like to usually do it diagrammatically is, you know, when Jesus died, the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. And the writer to the Hebrews uses the uh, architecture of the, of the temple and the tabernacle 
that the outer court is symbolic of this world and the inner court where Moses saw God face to face is symbolic of the next world. And we are now living in a, in a reality where the barrier between this world and the next world is an open veil flapping in the wind. And at any moment, suddenly God can turn up and it's as though the powers of the next world are suddenly present. And I have seen this now for, you know, um, I've been in ministry for about 100 years or something. Um, many times where we've had great moves of the Holy Spirit. And you're in a meeting and you're thinking nothing's going to happen here. It's just a normal Sunday and we're going to go home and, you know, have a bit of a preach and then have coffee and go home. And all of a sudden God shows up. And everything changes. Talk about rocking the boat. He can really rock the boat when he shows up in power. And the, the understanding of the kingdom makes you realize this can happen at any time. And you're open to God's wonderful surprises and interventions. Fourth thing is, this is the only way we can really understand the mystery of healing, physical healing. And it's very simple to put it like this. Why is it that when we pray for sick people, they get healed? The answer is, the kingdom is present already. And why is it that not everybody we pray for gets healed? The answer is because the kingdom is not yet here, totally. We're living in the tension and the mystery of the kingdom. This is also the best framework to understand the role of the church in the world today. Are we able to transform this world into the kingdom of God and make, you know, America a perfect society? Well, that would be utopianism. Or are we to sort of totally withdraw from society because it's going to be corrupt anyway and just wait for the end of the world to come? Uh, and how to carefully balance the responsibility of the church and the world comes out of understanding the overlap of the two ages of the kingdom. And then what's really personal for us is that as the kingdom is, so are all those born into the kingdom. So if the kingdom is an already not yet reality, you are an already not yet person. You are as mysterious as the kingdom is. So I'm going to introduce you to yourself in a little while as an already not yet person. So I don't have time to go through all these implications. What I'm going to do is just pick up a few of them. First of all, the importance of understanding that the last days began in Jesus, and ever since then we have been living in the last days. And in, in the diagram there are the, these two overlapping realities, and, and the overlap will finally end when Jesus comes, and we are raised, and we welcome him, and the new world begins. Now, there are other doctrines that have been very popular, especially 20, 30 years ago, um, that try to introduce extra little time zones into these two ages, which is the only thing the New Testament ever talks about. And the most popular one was known as dispensationalism. Um, there was a, a Bible called the Schofield Reference Bible that taught dispensationalism, and many Christians thought that his footnotes were as inspired as the Bible itself. Um, and in some denominations, you couldn't even be a pastor unless you signed that you were a dispensationalist. And the, the most central part of it was this idea of the pre-tribulation rapture, that seven years before the coming of Jesus, 
He will come secretly and invisibly, and the Christians will be zapped up, you know, beam me up, Scotty, we'll be out of here. And the unfortunate Jewish nation will have to live through the suffering of the Antichrist and all the evil that's going to happen, and then one day Jesus will come back with us. Um, now, wherever the understanding of the kingdom has spread amongst Bible teachers, theologians, that understanding basically shrinks and dies because they, they both can't live together. Um, and Lad, the same Lad, he had a famous debate in, in journals and books with a guy called Volford who was a dispensationalist, and basically Lad won the argument. And so it's very difficult to find any credible uh, New Testament teacher today who's still a dispensationalist. But there are places where, where it is present. But for us in the vineyard, because we've understood the kingdom, we really can't um, go there anymore. And also, some of the ways they, the, the dispensationalists interpret particular passages in Scripture are quite bizarre. Like uh, Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, they make it mean exactly the reverse of what he was actually saying, which is not a very clever thing to do. And I've given you a book there if any of you want to read that. But I suppose the most important, practical, dangerous thing about dispensational theology is it makes people have an escapist idea about the world in which we live. We mustn't be involved in justice or be concerned with the environment or really be worried about the society around us because it's all going to burn, we're getting out of here. Um, and that is not actually the kind of Christianity that is born out of kingdom theology. It's an escapist kind of uh, way of living the Christian life. So, that was the first one. Then, the ministry of healing. And you know, I think the ministry of healing is the most wonderful and frustrating thing you could ever imagine. Wonderful when people get healed, and so frustrating when they don't get healed. And I've seen some remarkable healings in my many years of, of ministry. Um, and there's a, there's a vineyard scholar at Asbury College called Craig Keener who's just written a fat thing. It's actually so fat it had to be two volumes called Miracles, where he traces the history of miracles from the time of Jesus through every century, through every denomination, through every country to today. And, I mean, it's just astonishing some of the things that you, you hear about. So, you know, the healing ministry is very, very important. And it's important because it's actually the commission that Jesus gave to the apostles and through them to us. He said, go and preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. You know, and if, if we aren't healing the sick, then we're just not obeying Jesus. It's, it's really, really important. We are supposed to enact the availability of the future world in Jesus. But if we get this tension between the two ages wrong, we either get into a kind of world where we don't expect healing to happen, and the church has often been there, or we are so on the other side that healing always has to happen. And that's called over-realized or under-realized eschatology. And neither of those extremes are helpful. Um, but when healing does happen, it is a sign that there is a world coming where there will be no more sickness, no more pain, where God will heal everything. And so John's gospel uses the, the, the word signs 
for the ministry of Jesus. They are like a hand pointing. And healings may not happen every day, and they may sometimes be rare. But when they happen, they are showing us that God can actually one day give us a whole new body. And he's giving us these down payments, these glimpses of a future world that is coming. That's how we are supposed to understand the healing ministry. And we should also not get paralyzed with this kind of thinking that says, okay, we prayed for somebody, we prayed for months, they weren't healed, therefore it was not God's will to heal them. I don't like that, it was not God's will to heal them. Because Jesus told us to pray, our Father in heaven, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he became the embodiment of what it looks like when God is having his way, when God's will is being done. And wherever Jesus went, people were being healed. So I think the will of God, which will finally be revealed when there's no more pain, no more sickness in the coming age, is to heal us. But mysteriously, we don't always get God's will happening all the time. And so people don't always get healed. But we mustn't get into this idea that God doesn't love us and wouldn't want to heal us. I think that's a paralyzing idea. It's much better to understand the mystery of the kingdom uh, when it comes to healing. Why do we pray for the sick? Not because we've got a good batting average of uh, how many people get healed. Um, you know, Wimber used to teach, when you've prayed for 100 people and no, nobody gets healed, then you're allowed to stop. But somewhere in the first 100, you'll see a healing. And then you're never allowed to stop. We do it because we were commissioned to do it. And we, we must be the kind of people in the vineyard who are pressing the envelope with healing all the time. So Wimber used to say that faith is spelt R-I-S-K, taking the risk. And being willing to look stupid for Jesus because you're going to do it again and again and again. Um, you know, I have spent a whole night once, a whole five or six hours in a morgue with a dead body. Um, praying for the dead body to be raised. And if I had been successful, you would have known. But I thought, you know, let's go for it. And one of the reasons is because of other stories of people being raised from the dead that are quite current. And, and I was in Zambia some years ago, and what had happened is that there was a, uh, a ministry group from Cape Town, from the vineyard, who were in Zambia. And while they were there, a, a tribal leader got struck by lightning and killed. And they said, come and pray for him. It was during the time of the Toronto move of the Spirit. There was lots of phenomena of healing. And after a number of hours of him being dead, this vineyard group got there, prayed for him, and he came back to life. And then a year later, I was teaching at this kind of intensive for a couple of weeks, and after, at the end, we had a, a dinner, and I was sitting on a couch where we were all sort of jammed in the couch, and I, I said, you know, that story about that chief that was raised from the dead, did it really happen? Um, because I'm a bit of a skeptic. Uh, you know, d does he live here? Do you know him? And the guy sitting next to me jabbed his elbow into my ribs, and he said, it's me. <laughs> I nearly got raised from the dead right there. It's like, ah! You know, I've, I've, I've seen a live one. <laughs> and so, you know, because of that, I did take this risk with a friend of mine, and I went and prayed for his dead body. So we must press into this 
this thing of healing. But when it doesn't happen, we must not get into irresponsible formulas. That, you know, the, the reason you weren't healed is you didn't have enough faith. Or you hadn't repented. Or something like that. And those sort of teachings that put guilt onto people, I think are actually cruel. The, the reason healing doesn't happen is the mystery of the kingdom. And uh, we do need to have a theology of suffering that, that can uh, make people realize that in this world, things don't always go our way. And, you know, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That's what they said in, in, the, in the early church. Um, so it's really only the theology of the kingdom that helps us have an active but responsible approach to the healing ministry. Then this whole thing of the church's role in society, utopianism versus withdrawal. This is all about the calling on the church to be involved in the ministry of justice. And you probably know that in the vineyard in this country, there's a whole network called the Vineyard Justice Network. And uh, many vineyard people in, in churches uh, are doing things like fighting this slave trade, human smuggling of people, uh, ministering to poor people in inner city areas. There, there's a whole plethora of, of justice type things that vineyard people get up to. And a little bit of a, of a sale. I've just published a book last end of last year called Kingdom Theology and Human Rights. And it's on Amazon, go and buy it there. And what I, what I show is that through the centuries, it has been mainly Christians that have been at the forefront of fighting for the rights of the poor and the oppressed and the weak. Um, and it's, it's our tradition as evangelical Christians. So, though we are engaged in justice, it doesn't mean that we can ever make a particular nation or country into the kingdom of God. No, this worldly nation, state, or empire, or society is the kingdom of God, as sometimes has been previously believed. Um, only when Jesus finally comes will the kingdom of God finally come. And there is a sense of the fallenness of, of humanity that is in all of these nations. Even the United States is not the kingdom of God. And neither is my country. Um, so we are always in the world, but not of the world, to use the language of Jesus. And because of that, as Christians, we cannot buy the utopian dreams that politicians and secular state people peddle. And there is a kind of alternative kingdom story from the Enlightenment that since the Enlightenment has happened and modern science has happened, humanity has now come of age and we are going to make this planet into a beautiful and wonderful place. See, Well, we can't buy any of those things because we know there's a thing called the fallenness and sin of humanity. And only God can actually bring the kingdom. And so we engage, but we engage with critical distance, critiquing all the promises. You know, the politicians, you know, vote for me and I'll make this world perfect. But although we are not of the world, 
it doesn't mean we must get outside of the world. We must be in the world, but relevant to the world. And there are certain kinds of Christianity that, that teach a kind of withdrawal into an evangelical ghetto, where all we must do is get people saved and keep them saved until the rapture. But it doesn't matter what else happens, we don't have to engage um, in, in society. But the truth is that if you read history, church history, again and again, especially as a result of revivals, there have been times when whole nations and societies have been drastically shaped by the gospel for hundreds of years. So if you read the history of this country, the revival under Jonathan Edwards deeply impacted all the founding fathers that wrote the Constitution. And the whole system of checks and balances and so on that you've got in this country came out of their understanding of the doctrine of sin and the doctrine of the nobility of man that they got from the revival under Jonathan Edwards. Or you can look at the influence of Calvin on, on Switzerland and, and uh, its whole system. And it happens sometimes. But then, of course, sin creeps back. And after a while, instead of just having the good, you get the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, back into society. And so we have to pray for another revival and we need to again leaven the world. And that's how it goes. So Christians must not be those who withdraw from social issues. If we withdraw from the public square and from the, uh, the narrative and the dialogue that's going on in a society, all that happens is the vacuum we leave behind is filled with other forces. Generally secular hu humanism or uh, New Age thinking or Islamic fundamentalism. And that we need to stay in there, influencing this world as much as we can, without being naive to think that we can make it perfect. And so we must empower Christians to actively engage in society wherever they can be influential and engage the powers of the day. So whether you're an educator or a businessman or a politician or a school teacher or whatever you are, you are the representative of God's kingdom in this world. And God wants you to make a maximum impact for his kingdom wherever you are. And the more we do that, we, the more we keep back the powers of evil. Did all that make sense? Hope so. Now, finally, a little bit more interesting. We Christians in ourselves are already not yet people. We are born into this mysterious reality. What does that mean? Well, it is the Apostle Paul, if you look at the New Testament, who is the genius who worked out the meaning of the kingdom in the Christian life. And uh, he uses the language of justification and sanctification. Another way of putting it is that in the language of the New Testament on the word salvation, salvation is used in three ways. We are saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. The last days have started, the last days are getting more last, and the last days will finally be the last day. So the kingdom, we've got the kingdom, the kingdom is coming, and the kingdom will come. We are born into this reality. So, if we look at that diagram that uh, we started with, we can then look at what Paul does to place us 
in this kingdom framework. That framework is the representation of the teaching and ministry of Jesus. After you read the Gospels, you understand Jesus, that's the picture you get. Now, what does Paul do with that? Well, he says that we once lived individually before Christ. And that little, little smiley, if you look carefully, is upside down. Not a happy camper, all right? So before you found Christ, your life was a little bit discombobulated. Then the kingdom comes into your life. And we are taken out of this age and placed into the kingdom <coughs> of his son. And we're now living, <coughs> although we're still in this world, we're already living the life of the future world. It's broken upon us. And as we keep walking with Jesus, in the language of the Apostle Paul, we are transformed from one degree of glory to the other. We rise up more and more into the person we're becoming, and we leave behind more and more the person we were. And Paul's language for that is the old man and the new man. The old man is not your dad. The old man is the you before you found Jesus. The way you used to think, the way you used to desire, the, the, all of your humanity. Uh, uh, Paul uses it, we were once in Adam. Now we are in Christ. We are a new humanity. And the new man is the new you that was born in you when you were born again of the Holy Spirit, already made in the image of God. And the more you walk with Jesus, the true you that God will make one day stands up more and more inside of you. And one day when we see him, we will be exactly like him. But already, the kingdom is transforming us the more it comes into our lives. So, the way uh, also this happens to us is reflected in, in the ceremony of baptism, where we go into the water and we come out, and, we, and it's a symbolism of dying and rising. And the outward symbol of baptism reflects the inner reality of being born of the Spirit. And once we are connected to Jesus like that, it means that his story becomes our story. So when he died, we died. When he was buried, we were buried. When he was raised, we were raised. And we are now living after death and resurrection in this new age that is broken upon us in Jesus Christ. So I think Paul does a wonderful job at positioning us into the kingdom. So third thing to say about that is that just like all these other pendulums where people lose the mystery and the tension of the kingdom, the one approach is to have a kind of Christianity where you, you don't expect a lot of victory. It's like, you know, get saved and just hold on until Jesus comes. But don't expect too much. Don't expect people to be healed. Don't expect God to move in your life. And, and you know, it's going to be a fight. Actually, the Bible is full of victorious language. It, Paul says, sin will have no dominion over you because you are not under law but under grace. Because you're living in this new dimension, you can live victoriously over sin. And another phrase, he that began a good work in you will bring it to completion. No doubt about it. In fact, the new you is going to stand up more and more inside of you and beat up the old you until the old you kind of is past. 
And you're the new person that, that you're becoming. So we need to be able to fully appreciate the language of victory and victory over sin that the Christian life promises us. But at the same time, we cannot teach a doctrine that you can get to the place before you meet Jesus one day where you don't sin anymore. That's also taking the pendulum to the other extreme. And dear old John Wesley wrote a book called A, uh, a Perfect Account of Christian Perfection. And it was neither perfect nor particularly Christian, I think. And, and he got verses about the anointing of the Holy Spirit for gifts. And he made it into a doctrine that you can have a thing called the second blessing. And after that, you don't sin anymore. You only make mistakes. And I think it's a bit like our politicians. They never make mistakes. They never sin, do they? They just make mistakes. Well, that's not real. The truth is, we are drastically transformed in Jesus, but we still have to fight the fight of what is not yet transformed in us. This is the reality of the Christian life. And so it is important to teach the reality of the struggle between the old you and the new you that is found in, in the New Testament. Um, the, the truth is that we are a war zone in motion. Two ages are coexisting in us and colliding against each other for supremacy in your soul. But guess what? The power of the coming kingdom is much more powerful than the power of the fallen world in which we live. And so we are going to get victory, but through a lot of spiritual warfare. That is the reality of the Christian life. And I sometimes do a whole session teaching on this. And when we have ministry time, there's a lot of response. Uh, and one of the reasons, I think, is many Christians just have an overwhelming sense of relief. You mean somebody understands me? The struggle I'm having? I'm not alone in being like, you know, one of God's trouble, troublesome kids. Uh, I'm not alone in, in having days where I feel very triumphant and other days where I feel utterly ashamed of myself and wonder if I'm even converted. You mean... I'm still okay? And the answer is yes, you just an already not yet Christian. Like every Christian is an already not yet Christian. Um, and if we don't teach this, what we build into our people is a kind of hypocrisy. Where we live a double life. And you know, when we're in Christian company and the pastor comes to visit, we're, we're victorious Christians. But secretly, we've got another life, maybe of moral failure, and we can't talk about the two together because we don't think that this is normal Christianity. And I, we, we, I like to say that the vineyard is a place where it's safe to be real. And I don't particularly like totally victorious Christians because they seem to be up there and I'm down here. And I also think they're kind of lying a little bit, you see. I like Christians who are full of praise for Jesus, love to tell their stories of victory, but also are willing to tell their stories of brokenness and pain. And those are people who are living in the reality of the kingdom. Well, I'm done. God bless you. Can I pray for you? Won't you just stand up? I'm going to pray for you. And I'm just going to pray that the kingdom comes. All right? It's a prayer Jesus told us to pray. And so Jesus... We just look up at you and say, you are 
Amazing. Thank you, Father, that in your Son, Jesus, the kingdom came. And the kingdom is coming. And Lord, that the power of your kingdom is present right here this morning in this place. And so, Lord, first of all, I pray for these, your people, that your sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit will deeply work in them and give them more and more victory in Jesus Christ. Lord, we bring some of the habitual sins and and bondages that some of us struggle with, and we say, Lord, let your kingdom come. Break the power of bondage. Renew us again and again. Make us more like you, Lord. We open up to the to the promise of your transforming grace. And Lord, I also pray that in this church, you will bring a dramatic, fresh move of the Holy Spirit. Lord, come and surprise this, your people, and start to move in ways that will rock the boat, Lord. Uh, bring back, Lord, some of the power of healing and, and uh, the power of, of phenomena of your Spirit, Lord, that will surprise us. And Lord, then I I pray that this, your people, will be so empowered by you that they will make a major difference in the society around them. Lord, let them be those who do bring justice to this world, who do lift up the broken and transform this sad and broken world. Let them, each one, Lord, be an island, an advertisement of your coming kingdom. And Lord, I thank you for these things, that you're doing them, And I pray, Lord, that you will do them more and more in your name. Amen.